listening to Kay, Voice of Resistance. I'm your host, Kelly. I would like to give a shout-out to the people and the animals who survived Michael on the East Coast right now. Her is very grateful to all those Republicans who did their part in ensuring its path into the record books. I don't believe that what they say, I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money. Republicans who for decades have not only denied climate change, but have actively sought out policies that would contribute to turning up the heat. And when they weren't implementing damaging policies, they were sabotaging any real efforts to help mitigate both climate change and the efforts to make surviving and recovering from the storms born of, or at least worsened by climate change. For congressional Republicans, it's regulation hunting season. Republicans have made no secret of their plans to swipe at what they've deemed an overly burdensome environmental agenda from the Obama administration. Regulation, they say? Not in my country. Well, you know what is coming into your country, whether you like it or not. Devastating, often deadly storms that don't give a frack about your chosen scientific ignorance or not. And to be fair, the Democrats haven't worked as hard as they could have done all these years either. But hell, at least they tried. And the conservative politicians know the science. Most of them, at least. They know they just don't care. They know well, most of them, that the science is sound. Every great scientific truth goes through three phases. First, people deny it. Right. Second, they say it conflicts with the Bible. Third, they say they've known it all along. But they sit in their gilded rooms on their piles of money and count the paper that rolls in from the oil industry. From the logging industry. They get to sit high atop their hill in their houses, protected with their private fire department, private police department, safe rooms, and servants, while the world burns, floods, and blows away around them. They won't go hungry, see loved ones die, or lose a thing. And what's worse, what's worse, is they will find ways to turn the dying world into a prophet. She told me, you can't hold me. She said, take care of the kids and the grandkids. But we ain't got nowhere to go, nowhere I'm going. I'm, I'm lost. That's all I had. That's all I had. Love what I'm going to do. They are masters of disaster capitalism. Don't believe me? Look at what Mike Pence and his cronies did during the quote-unquote recovery after Katrina. When the floodwaters were still rising in New Orleans, one of the first official acts that the governor did uh, was to fire all the teachers. What's happening is a raid of the money set aside for public education to be given to private companies. Disaster capitalism. The typical U.S. Congress member is 12 times richer than the typical American household. The median member of Congress is worth at least $1.1 million. And that's not the whole story, is it? Uh-uh. Not at all. According to courts, conservatively, conservatively, the median net worth of a senator was $3.2 million. $900,000 for members of the House of Representatives. And I say conservatively for all this because Congress members are not required to report on the value of their residence. And who knows what's going on in offshore accounts. Congress is not comprised of your average Joe. Not only is Congress easier for those who can afford to run, which makes it a job that lends itself to the wealthy, but also that Congress tends to be old white dudes who are the wealthiest people in our society. And guys, guys, I am not saying that 
everyone who is wealthy is corrupt. But I am saying that wealth often goes with corruption. Especially when you tack on the sweetener that is power. And it would be nice to say that our politicians did not, on average, use their position to enrich themselves. But in one study, researchers estimated that from 1985 to 2001, members of the House of Representatives beat the market by about six percentage points. According to CBS News, of course there are lawmakers who use their position to enhance their wealth through influence peddling and privileged information to make better investments. As if the massive tax cuts that disproportionately help them was not enough. We all know that we need money out of politics. Because once we do that, we can get people understand where most of us are coming from. Real people with real problems, with real interest. And look... I don't care if you have Warren Buffett's amount of money coming out of your ears, so long as you are a Warren Buffett kind of person, a Bill and Melinda Gates kind of person, a good person, a Bill and Melinda Gates kind of person, a good person. And of course there are good people, good wealthy people in Congress who really do want to do good things. And hell, I'm a realist. I don't like it. If our politicians, to gain an edge over the stock market, engaged in a little dirty dealing, rock on. As long as nobody gets hurt in the end, I'll stomach it so long as they spend the rest of the time trying to help the people, as long as they are working to lift up the lower classes to make folks like themselves pay their fair share. And there are politicians who do. At the end of the day, be they rich or poor, have an R in front of their name or a D, we need to hold them to account. And when they fall short of their promises, we need to grab a buddy or ten and march our real housewives watching asses to the polls to march their asses out of the capital. In cities and states all across the nation, there are good people, honest people running for a place in politics, not because they want something to chat about at the next cocktail party in the Hamptons, not for something to do between lobbying jobs, or because they want a tax cut. They are running because they care and want to make a difference. They are not taking corporate money. They are not wedding themselves to promises that are not for the people. They do not believe that corporations are people too. Political hopefuls who support human rights, not corporate rights. Who care about children's futures, not stock futures. Who support environmental justice, social justice, economic justice, and legal justice. Candidates who see a political system that is flawed, corrupted, and in many ways broken, and instead of changing the channel, have decided to change the system to create a better way. Candidates who see a seat at the table and pull up chairs for everybody. Candidates who just might say something like this. When I win, I pledge that I'm going to donate the difference between my income in 2018 and my income in 2019. So it'll be most of my legislative salary minus uh, money that I lose from the four months that I'm working in the legislature and that I can't work my regular job. I'm going to donate that money back to the people of Midwest City and let them decide how they want to uh, allocate it. It might be the fire, fire department or the police or the education system. I don't think that serving in the legislature or any other political office should be a financial step up. And I think that that shows people that I'm not in this for the money or the career advancement or anything. I just want to help people and fix our state. That is Richard Bickham, a lifelong resident of Midwest City in Oklahoma and an independent candidate for Oklahoma's District 95, State House of Representatives, who I had the pleasure of talking to the other day. 
Until the midterms, I'll be putting up shows with political hopefuls across our nation in a candidate series to hear from the kinds of people we would be lucky to have in office. So he is running in the general election against a Democrat named Kelly Albright. There is always a conversation to be had about two good people running against each other in the same race and the possibility of splitting the vote. But that is not what these episodes are about. These episodes are about what is possible. People are disillusioned with politics, and even more with politicians. The jaded sarcasm, if not outright disgust, that streams across my social media every day in regards to politics is constant. And you know what? It has been a constant since media became social. But especially right now. I think it will help people to hear from good, authentic candidates and hear their policy ideas to see what is really possible should we show up and vote. If nobody votes, then if you would decide, speak your mind with your vote, yeah. you'll do it nationwide. Vote! And check your voter registration. In many states, it's too late to register at this point, but there's always provisional ballot possibilities. Check your state's rules. And check your registration even if you voted in the primary. My friend's mom here in California who voted in the primary was taken off the voter rolls. Luckily, they're on top of it and they checked and they saw what happened and they got it registered. But this is happening, be it for nefarious or innocent reasons. It's happening. So make sure you are able to make your voice heard on the 6th. Come on, guys. Do it. You know you want to. Everyone's doing it. Things are looking up. 2018's National Voter Registration Day alone broke its previous record of 771,321 new registered voters as more than 800,000 people registered in preparation for the midterms. Organizers had a goal of 300,000, so that's pretty amazing. And that was before the T-Swift bump. I'm sure you heard about Taylor Swift and the Instagram post that changes the world, the world, the world. She did a post that stressed the need for equality and urged fans to vote Democratic and register to vote. And 65,000 people did just in that 24-hour period. She commands an army. While the cynic in me says kids in cages don't inspire voters, but Taylor did, the realistic activist in me says, hey, whatever it takes, vote! And check your voter registration. In many states, it's too late to register at this point, but... There's always provisional ballot possibilities. Check your state's rules. And check your registration even if you voted in the primary. My friend's mom here in California who voted in the primary was taken off the voter rolls. Luckily, they're on top of it and they checked and they saw what happened and they got it registered. But this is happening, be it for nefarious or innocent reasons. It's happening. So make sure you are able to make your voice heard on the 6th. Come on, guys. Do it. You know you want to. Everyone's doing it. <laughs> I have a call to action. 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 Oppose anti-immigrant Chad Redler to a lifetime judgeship. And before I start, can we agree that no one named Chad should ever have a lifetime appointment as a judge? Chad's not a judge's name. It's the name of a dude wearing an inappropriate Indian headdress at spring break doing a keg stand. Which was a lot funnier joke until we realized we put that same guy on the Supreme Court already. Anyways, 
Even as the Department of Justice faces bipartisan outrage for its policy of separating immigrant parents from their children at the border, Donnie has nominated a key defender of family separation for a lifetime judgeship. Chad Redler, the acting assistant attorney general of the Department of Justice Civil Division, has a long history of advocating for harmful, discriminatory policies. Since joining the DOJ, Redler has advanced many of the department's most heinous positions, including the aforementioned family separation policy, the transgender military ban, the termination of DACA, the Muslim travel ban, and the baseless assertion that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. While all attorneys sometimes find themselves advocating for positions they don't agree with personally, Redler's history of working for clients like the Koch brothers suggests that he's all too happy to advance the GOG's homophobic, xenophobic, racist, anti-labor agenda. Redler's extreme positions, many of which contravene federal legal precedent, prompted Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio, to refuse to support Redler's nomination. Historically, the Senate Judiciary Committee has deferred to the guidance of the home state senators when deciding whether to vote on a nomination. However, the Senate Judiciary Chair Chuck Grassley has announced that he will break with this long-established tradition and allow votes on nominees even without home state senators' support. It is unconscionable for Grassley and other Senate Republicans to ignore decades of precedent to ram through an unqualified, dangerously extremist nominee like Redler. So pick up the phone, call your senator, and tell them to vote no, politely. My name is Richard Bickham. I'm an independent candidate in House District 95 in Oklahoma, at Western Midwest City, Tinker Air Force Base, and Lake Stanley Draper. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. No problem. Thanks for the help. You're running as an independent. So do you call yourself a progressive? I do. Um, a lot of people that I talk to at the doors assume that independent means centrist, but independents come from all over the political spectrum. There's progressives, there's super liberals, neocons, libertarians, all that call themselves independents. So I'm a progressive. My political views are pretty similar to Bernie Sanders. I've been endorsed by Our Revolution Oklahoma. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. They've been helping out a lot. They're an organization that uh, was founded by Bernie Sanders to continue that sort of thinking in politics after his campaign. Is this your first campaign? Yep, this is my first campaign. I'm 25, so this is the first campaign I could legally run for, actually. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really admire that, especially at such a young age. What compelled you to run? Well, my first interest in politics started when I was about five years old. I found out that I had the same birthday as Abraham Lincoln. So I just started telling everyone that when they'd ask what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would tell them I wanted to be the president. So I studied political science and prepared myself. And uh, what compelled me to run specifically this term is we had an open seat in my district. So I had a good opportunity to, to get into politics. Then also in Oklahoma, I don't know how up to date you are in Oklahoma politics, but we had a teacher walkout back in April. Yes. Where our education system is so bad, we're consistently ranked 49th or 50th in the country. And the teachers ended up walking out to demand some more money for the classrooms, raises for themselves, and a few other things that they needed. And that inspired me to run so that I could uh, support that movement. How did Bernie's run inspire your positions? Or did you more find that his positions matched yours already? Or did he draw you more towards his positions? Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, a lot of his positions matched positions that I had already, but there were some other positions which 
I believed in, but I didn't think had uh, wide enough support to really advocate for. For example, $15 minimum wage, housing security, criminal justice reform, and his campaign showed that there is a lot of widespread support for that and that we can get young people and progressive people more active in politics to where they can actually have influence on elections. So do you define progressive as separate from liberal? Most definitely. It can be in a lot of ways. There are people who might be on the conservative side of the spectrum socially who could still identify as progressives economically and vice versa. There could be conservatives economically who can identify as progressive socially. So it's not necessarily... All, all liberals that are progressives, but by and large, yes, they're they're liberal people. How about the term Democrat? Well, if I had to choose a party or a label, it would definitely be Democrat. I was registered as a Democrat up until 2016. After the election is when I changed my registration to independent. I agree with them on a lot of things, critique largely of the party system in general. I think it's an extra layer between people and their government that we don't really need anymore. It was useful when we wrote the Constitution, when we wrote with feathers, it was useful to have a party system then because a presidential candidate in, in Virginia, for example, couldn't get all the way across the 13 states in time to get his message out to everyone. But now that we have the internet and phones and all these other forms of mass communication, we don't really need that extra layer anymore. And identifying yourself as either a Republican or a Democrat takes away people's need to substantively engage with their candidates, figure out exactly where they stand on the issues. They can just say, this guy's a Democrat, I'm a Democrat, so we probably agree on everything. And then we end up with incompetent people in office. Tell us about your Democratic opponent, Kelly Albright. Uh, Kelly Albright is a good candidate. Um, I've talked to her several times. We have a lot in common. Her major issue is education. She's a teacher herself. That's a major issue for me, too. But the primary difference is I don't take any corporate donations. And a large part of my campaign is centered around campaign finance reform, ensuring that the politicians that we get into office serve the people first and not their corporate donors. Your state, as you well know, is a red one. How does your district look in comparison? Pretty red as well. It's not as red as the state by and large. Uh, all 77 counties in Oklahoma were majority Trump counties, even the metropolitan areas. But my district is fairly red. We've got a military base uh, right in the middle of it. And a lot of the families and communities that live there are in the military as well. So that makes the district tend to lean more Republican. What vision do you have for the future of your district? Well, I really want to make a difference in Oklahoma. Like you said, we're a very Republican state. That's led to some policies that are very regressive. Like I said, we're first in the nation for incarceration, 49th or 50th for education. There's a long list of uh, statistics I could give you, but Oklahoma is at the bottom of all the good lists and the top of all the bad lists. We're a very hardworking state. We're good people. And I think that we can do a lot better than that. So I want to be a part of that change. I know that I can. And that keeps me getting out every morning to go knock doors. Your state has the distinction of being number one in the country in incarceration rates, which also means it leads the world in incarceration rates. Yeah, the demand of the free houses a quarter of the world's prison population. What do you attribute to this trend? Well, a big part of the problem, I think, is for-profit prisons. Oklahoma has gotten really into that. They're necessary right now because we don't have the uh, public prison necessary to house all of our prisoners. But the for-profit prison system uh, pays by the bed filled with the prisoner. So it gives an incentive to keep incarcerating people. Another thing that will help with our incarceration issue, we just passed a medical marijuana legislation. And uh, we're working on recreational. That'll help keep a lot of folks from starting down that path because it's a cycle. You know, you get arrested for something small, you go to jail, you got fees to pay, then it just sort of snowballs from there. And a lot of people end up getting longer prison sentences. 
that'll make a dent. And then we also need to work on building our public prison system so that we don't have to rely so much on for-profit prisons. Then, of course, we know poverty and crime rates are inextricably linked, and Oklahoma is a somewhat impoverished state. So we need to work on building our economic activity, lowering our unemployment rate, and those things will help as well. And as we know, people of color are disproportionately incarcerated. How do you suggest we address this? Well, one thing that we have to work on there is police training, racial racial bias training with the police, because obviously the incarceration starts at the arrest rate. So we need to get some training in place there. Next, people need to elect judges that are less likely to incarcerate minorities at a higher rate. That doesn't just mean minority judges, but that will help a lot. We've elected one here recently, and there's two more on the docket that I really hope get elected. You have signed a pledge to support your state's open government laws. Can you tell us what that means and why that matters to you? Sure. Um, So I signed uh, Freedom of Information, Oklahoma's Open Government Pledge. Our representatives are our employees. That's an important thing for us to remember and for our representatives to remember. And we have a right to know exactly what they do and why they do it. And whatever documents or information that they used, the the public also has a right to have access to. So I signed that pledge because I support that sort of thinking. I want to make sure that people have direct access to all the information that they need so that when it comes time to reelect those people, you really know who you're supporting and what their track record has been. Both Democrats and Republicans are responsible for slashing taxes in your state, to the point that many of Oklahoma's overcrowded schools have gone to just four-day weeks. What are your thoughts for tax reform? Specifically, the gross production tax. In Oklahoma, a large part of our economy is mineral extraction, oil and gas extraction. And we have one of the lowest tax rates in the country on the gas that we extract. I think if we can raise that to the national average, it would provide us a lot more money that we could use for education which is going to factor into that incarceration problem that we were talking about earlier. Better education, more opportunities, you're less likely to get incarcerated. That link is pretty clear. So that tax specifically is one thing that I'm going to work on raising, at least to the regional average, if not the national average. But it's difficult for an Oklahoma politician to say, I'm going to raise taxes on oil and gas because so many of our politicians take donations from oil and gas companies that when they get into office, they know they have to pay those donations back by voting against tax increases. So that's part of the reason that I've sworn to not take any corporate donations is so that I can have the freedom to support the tax increases that people need to pay for the things that we need in our state. That oil and gas is part of our state. It's brought out of the ground with the labor of our people. Uh, I think that more of it should go to supporting the state and supporting the people. In your platform, you talk about the advancement of individual liberties. What liberties would you like to see expanded? So what I meant by that specifically is increasing the inclusion that minority groups have in Oklahoma. Right now, it's not great. Obviously, we're a very red state and we have issues with that. With the changes in the Supreme Court, uh, there are going to be some issues that come up soon regarding women's rights, LGBTQT rights, and minority rights in general. And it's going to be left to the state level to determine what's going to happen with those things, I think. So we need more politicians at the state level, especially in red states like Oklahoma, that will be committed to ensuring that we keep the advancements we currently have and continue to make sure that all people have equal rights, regardless of their race, their sexual identity, religious identity, and so on. With the recent nomination of Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, women are scared now more than ever that they may lose their rights for control over their own bodies. But even before this new threat from the Supreme Court, as I'm sure you know, health clinics across the nation have been shut down in a push to end abortion rights. 
These clinics are not just used for women, they are used for men. And as affordable health care options become unavailable, sexually transmitted disease rates rise and more. Would you work to expand access to health clinics? That's something that I want to do. It's going to be a hard fight with the legislature uh, when I get elected, obviously, because we'll be outnumbered. But we do need to expand access to health clinics. You're right about it not just being for women. And a big part of the problem is this thinking that abstinence-only education is going to solve any problems, and it's simply not. That's not the way that young people think. And denying people access to contraceptives, protection that they need, is not going to solve the problem at all. And if abstinence-only education is the way that you want to go, that's great in your own home, but that shouldn't be the government's position. Amen to that. Oklahoma has the second highest rates of residents without health care coverage in the nation. The Republicans who run things out there did not take advantage of the Medicare expansion under the ACA. Regardless, like most states, Oklahoma's coverage rate improved dramatically after the Affordable Care Act. But did the ACA go far enough? Um, so I'm just running for a state office, so I'll, I'll start with that caveat. But the Medicare for All program that is being talked about amongst progressive groups is really good. Um, I read a study by the Koch brothers that suggested that it would save money over a uh, over a 10-year term versus our current system. And if you know anything about the Koch brothers, you would expect them to be biased against a program like that, but their study actually revealed that it would save money. It would save money, it increases access, and that's not just save money per capita, that's save money overall, including all of the people who would have access to healthcare under that system and currently don't, who would still be spending less money. So that's where I stand on healthcare. I didn't know about that study by them. Yeah, I can send you a link to it if you want. That would be great. Thanks. Now, this is not something you wish to discuss. I fully understand. You are a young progressive person of color running in Oklahoma. Did you worry about the racism you might face before you got in the race? I didn't. Um, if we allow ourselves to be scared of racism, then we're always going to have racism. So we have to be fearless in the face of it. So um, I didn't actually give it much thought before I started running. I knew that I would probably encounter it at some level, but that I would combat it and beat it. Have you encountered much? Um, I don't think that I have experienced any racism directly to my face from voters that I've talked to at the doors or at candidate forums. That's really encouraging to hear. What would you say to those listening who might be on the fence about running for some kind of office? Might be a little nervous? Do it. It's uh, it's actually a lot of fun. It's not nearly as scary as you might think it is. It's a great way to make a difference. And even if you don't get elected, you still get your voice and your views out there and they might connect with someone else who ends up running and winning later on. You might just increase exposure for yourself and you can win the next time around. So don't be scared. Don't be intimidated because like I said, it is a lot of fun. When you go door to door and talk to people, they're usually very receptive and uh, just glad to hear that a politician actually came to speak with them. So don't be intimidated. Get out there and do it. Wonderful. Final question. How important is this election? Um, this election is hugely important. Um, I'm running against, uh, like I said, Kelly Albright is a teacher and uh, the Republican I'm running against, Jack Beal, is an Air Force veteran. And no matter how people vote in the House District 95 election, dozens of teachers will get elected and dozens of retired Republicans will get elected. But will we have a politician who stands against corporate donations, who wants to reform campaign finance, who wants to further the progressive values that I want to further. That's what House District 95 voters get to decide in November. And uh, I hope that everyone that I've talked to actually gets out and votes and that we see a win. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. What's your website so people can check you out? 
My website is my first and last name, Rashard Bickham. 2018.org. It's got more information on my political stances on there. There's a link to my crowd pack where you can make a donation if you choose to. And anything else that you need, you can find there. My phone number is on there if anybody wants to get a hold of me as well as my email address. Wish you the best of luck and thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. See, told you there's candidates out there worth having faith in. Okay, guys. Thank you for sticking with me and this episode of K, Voice of Resistance. You can stream or download the show at crabdivy.com under the K Voice tab or on your favorite podcasting app. Follow me on Facebook at K Voice of Resistance and check out the Crowd Diving Podcast with hosts Patrick Vile and comedian Ryan Pfeiffer. Two hours a day, Monday through Friday. They'll give you a rundown of the headlines and the news you might be missing, as well as a ton of news you may have missed beneath headlines. With a lot of humor and a little bit of rage. All right, guys, gotta go. Take care of yourselves out there. And as always, resist.